Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studio here in Beijing. I'm Kaiser Guo, and with me, as usual, is the only moderately hostile foreign force, Jeremy Goldhorn, the man behind the indispensable <laughs> Danway.com. How are you, Jeremy? Very good, Kaiser. Very well. How are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to see that you're moderating your hostility as a foreign force here. <laughs> Jeremy, do you think that the two of us um, and the particular dynamic that, that has evolved on this show... Uh, and has come really to characterize it. Do you think that we kind of represent a, a Confucian Taoist pairing? <laughs> I, I'm not even going to answer that. Am I? Am I mentioned? And, and you're sort of Zhuangzi. I'm Zhuangzi, definitely. I want to be Zhuangzi. Zhuangzi is the better writer. Maybe, maybe it's fair. We give that to you. He has the more ha- hallucinogenic dreams. Well, yeah, that that I would grant you definitely. Um, and anyway, the reason I ask is that we are, are are very honored to be joined by Professor Sam Crane from the Department of Political Science at Williams College in Massachusetts. Now, ordinarily, Sam teaches contemporary Chinese politics, but today we're here to talk about his latest book, "Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Tao." Ancient Chinese Thoughts in Modern American Life. By the way, he also teaches ancient Chinese philosophy, so uh, and that's that's the strain here. But I see he sort of con- combines. His hats into this very interesting book. We'll say hello, Sam. Well, how do you do? Oh, there you go. <laughs> okay. It's great to be in Beijing. Yeah, and uh, you've had a little bit of you know the the, the yin and the yang of Beijing weather. There you we know, go. Um, we are also joined by Jeremiah Jenny, who is center director at the IES program here in Beijing. Good friend of the show, a scholar of Qing history par excellence, author of the Jottings from the Granite Studio blog. Welcome back. How you doing, Kaiser? I'm. Good. It's good to see you, and and, and um, congrats. You know, you know what I'm talking about. I'd like to welcome my favorite Yankees fan, Sam Crane, to uh, <laughs> to Beijing just in time for me to uh, to run, wrap up run my weekend long celebration of all things Boston. You've more or less got a suit on with a, a Red Sox baseball cap on. You know, yeah, <laughs> and he's clean shaven. <laughs> Anyhow, okay. Anyway, let's get right into it and, and talk about this book. Um, Sam, your book sets out, as you say, to illustrate how ancient Chinese philosophy is helpful for understanding and living in a modern American world. Now, that's something that you've been doing for quite some time in your blog, which is called The Useless Tree, and uh, it's something that we, we many of us are, are fans of. But even before that, um, let, let's, let's talk about your time in China from, from the beginnings, when you got interested in all things China. Well, this I'm, I'm celebrating my 30th year of, of coming to Beijing. I first arrived in 1983 to, uh, to study a little Chinese at Beida and their Hanyu Jingxiaoban. I think I still need a little uh, Jingxiao, though. Uh, and I was researching my dissertation then. So I'm one of those old guys who walks around the street kind of mumbling, everything's changed, everything's <laughs> changed. And But I think the kids are all right. Oh, It'll do. I really do. Right, right. Um, that's great. Now you were you were actually you were in um, in Nanjing actually in 1989 if I if I remember correctly. Everyone's right. had an 89 story. So I'm as trained as a political scientist. So my my research early research had been on the politics of post Mao economic policy. Wrote a book on the special economic zones. Uh, that's what I was researching at, at Beida, and then I was down at Guangzhou for a while in '84. Got my first real uh, academic job at Georgetown, and it was but then left there and took a year to teach at the Nanda Hopkins Center. Mm-hmm. And I was there for 88, 89. A big year there because in 88, the end of 88, there were the anti-African protests. So it's the very same time that I was here in China at Beijing Language Institute. And oh, there we, you go. We had spillover from that too. Right, there. right. So, But it, it was it was really horrendous in, in Nanjing. And right. Again, so as a student of Chinese politics, you know, here we were, you know, thousands of Chinese students then 
protesting out on the street. And of course, that was minuscule compared to spring of 89, where uh, Nanjing was caught up in the cycle of, of demonstrations that spread across the country, sort of following Beijing. There wasn't the violence in 1989 mm-hmm. uh, in Nanjing that, when they put it down, but it was extraordinary. Great, you know, my students, my Chinese students at the Hopkins Center were very much involved in uh, organizing local protests and the like. And there was a dynamic in the classroom where most of them got involved, but a couple of them didn't. And we all assumed that, you know, those couple were staying loyal and probably informing on the others. So one day I came into the classroom and there's like, you know, 20 kids in the class, 18 of them are sitting on one side and two are sitting literally isolated off on another. So battle lines were drawn. It was a difficult time. Wow, indeed. Now let's 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 fast forward a little bit and and talk about how somebody who had just written a book about special economic zones and was researching you know, economic policy in post Mao China suddenly got so interested in ancient Chinese philosophy and, and the hundred schools of thought. I uh, so I had encountered Taoism when as when I was in college way back in the seventies and was familiar with Chinese philosophy. It was sort of on the edges of my consciousness. Uh, and then my son was born in nineteen ninety one, Aiden, and he was born profoundly disabled and is our first child. And of course, that's a profound crisis for any family, especially a first child. Any child, you don't know what you're doing. A profoundly disabled child, you're completely disoriented. And in the midst of that, I reached for Taoism as a way to come to understand and interpret and find meaning in his life. And Zhuangzi in particular, actually, as you, as you know, there's lots of images of disability in Zhuangzi there. Yeah, there's one very, very famous piece out of Zhuangzi that I remember translating when I was, I, I can't can't remember the name of the protagonist, but it's it, it talks about a guy who's just very disabled. You know, he has you know his different body parts in the wrong places, right? Right. Quite yeah, upside down. Actually, I think that's the one where there's there's four friends, and one of them is is starting to sort of collapse in a way, and so physically fall. So his his he's hunched back, and his his nape is above his shoulder. Right. Exactly. All sorts of, yeah. That's, that, that's, that's the description. That's, that's the line exactly. His yeah, nape above yeah. his shoulders. So so my, my wife raised Catholic, I was raised Catholic also, and she went there. She went to religion, which is not uncommon, of course, for Americans to find solace when faced with some kind of tragedy or crisis. I'd fallen from that way and I guess found another way uh, in looking for some kind of solace in Taoism. And I found that and wrote a book, Aiden's Way, about that, where I used Taoism, uh, the Tao Te Ching and Zhuangzi and a little bit of the Yijing to help work through issues of disability and how, in fact, I think those texts help us see that uh, a disabled life is as valuable as any other life. Uh, Sam, can I stop you there? Uh, Homan, you said that your wife went to religion and you went to another way. So you don't think of Taoism as a religion. Uh, That's a great point because, of course, Taoism is a religion, but Taoism is also a philosophy. There's always been that bifurcation, Tao Jiao and Tao Jia, right? People argue you about how you can't really separate them. Oh, we have these can. two words. But you, you, surely you can. I, I mean, no, I, I religious Taoism doesn't really emerge until mid-2nd century AD, right? Exactly. So, and the texts are written much before that. That's right. So, and there's always been a strain of thought, Tao Jia, uh, the philosophical Taoist, and that's what I, I'm drawn to. So I'm glad that you made the point because I think it's important that when I talk about Taoism, what I'm talking about is philosophical Taoism. No disrespect to religious Taoism, I just don't understand it as well, and I don't practice. But for a kind of secular guy like me, uh, the philosophical Taoism is uh, a source of solace in crisis. Which is good because, I mean, if it had been religious Taoism you reached to, I don't think that I would have been able to make it through any of your book at all. 
<laughs> it would be totally unintelligible to most people because it's just a, it's it's a nutty grab bag of of folk superstition. <laughs> Let's face it. I mean, it is. It's just. So I guess that isn't disrespect. Or not. Yeah, I, 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 that disrespect is coming entirely from me. You and walk I, back. And I mean no it. disrespect to religious. No, no, I'm, just I'm, nice I'm, I'm staying with it. I'm staying with it. I'm, I'm giving that to Kaiser. That's Kaiser's. Yeah, that's yeah you, can, you can give the disrespect to religion to Kaiser and me. Uh, we, we're quite good at that. That's right. We catch a lot of shit for it. Anyway, that's fascinating. And you've been extraordinarily candid about talking about Aiden and, and his story. And, uh, and he figures in a lot. Uh, and he passed a few years ago. Is that correct? 2006, yes. Okay. Very, very sorry. He was 16 or 14, 14 years 14 old. Now, I think that the way you set this book up is really, really very interesting. You focus on how a modern Confucian or a modern Taoist might approach a bunch of, of contemporary American issues that are hotly debated. You even get into some pretty specific topics, everything from in vitro fertilization to stem cell research to parenting issues to I think that maybe a productive way to go about this is maybe you could talk a little bit first about you know how you selected these ethical problems from American society today and then maybe we could take a couple of them I have some suggestions and we could, we could drill down a little and, and talk specifically about how you think a Confucian or a Taoist might approach these profitably. Yeah, I think the best place to start is to say that this is a exercise in practical ethics. Uh, that is to say, using these philosophies to derive ideas about living a good life through right action, which has a kind of ancient Greek kind of resonance to it. And I think that is there, actually, in terms of thinking about what a good life is and how one lives a good life and how one lives that through right action. And from that starting point, I'd emphasize it in in a sense it's sort of a bottom-up way of looking at these philosophies in the sense that it's framing ideas for how individuals might use ideas in their personal lives as they move through that. And that's to be distinguished from what we might call like a top-down view of Confucianism, which would be more a matter of law and state power. So this book is less interested in law and state power and is more interested in how individuals might be able to derive ideas from these texts that would help them in their everyday personal experiences. But to be clear, these texts themselves weren't written just for individuals. They were written essentially in much the same way that Machiavelli wrote his uh, famous The Prince. They were sort of manuals for rulers of state. They have clearly have a political content to them. But they also have this other facet. And in fact, I'm happy to argue that taking these texts from a bottom-up approach is a better way of getting to the political aspects of them, especially when we're thinking of contemporary moments than what I'm calling a top-down. But we can talk about that later if you want me to kind of move into the... Can we also, because we've introduced Confucianism now, we're talking two strains of ancient Chinese thought, Taoism and Confucianism. What's the relationship between the two of them? Oh, well, they're constantly playing off of each other. And why have you put them in the same book? Well, I mean, are they I not guess, things that should be separate? I guess I picked them because I'm coming out of a Taoist kind of project, Aiden's Way, that book, and I'm more rooted in Taoism in terms of thinking. But the next place to go in Chinese philosophy is Confucianism. Like, it's rather large. So I thought, let me use those two. And actually, let me create, so what the book does, it creates a conversation between Confucians and Taoists on certain issues. And I think by doing that, we can understand each of them better because we put them next to each other and in tension at times. So there's moments where they differ, moments where they overlap. Maybe we could get Jeremiah to come in here and, and talk a little bit about brushstrokes outlines of what these two philosophies represent, the, the very different approaches to life, and maybe say that they are both very strong strains in, in the mind, in the psyche of, of all Chinese thinkers from the classical era to really perhaps even the present. I mean, yeah, I, I think it's it's kind of hard, to, as, as Sam said, it's kind of hard to separate 
the two strains, Confucianism and Taoism, I think one of the first things that will confound many non-Chinese, especially those people from North America and Europe, is this notion that you could subscribe, if you will, to many different philosophical traditions almost at the same time. I mean, there's always been a very syncretic nature of how these particular strains of thought have been utilized or understood in uh, Chinese political and, and even in daily life. What I think is interesting, too, is that you know, we're talking about Taoism and Confucianism here a little bit as sort of like two poles, although a Taoist, this may be resorting a bit to cliche, I would probably say you can't have opposites, you need to have complementary parts. And it's hard to imagine, certainly in the imperial period, any aspect of people's philosophical or intellectual existence that doesn't on some level draw from both Taoism and Confucianism at the same time. And especially if you're looking, as Sam says, from, from a bottom-up perspective of these ideas. You know, if we were looking the other way, if we're looking at a top-down way, we'd probably have to bring in, you know, the third bad boy legalism. of legalism. Sure. And, you know, if we're talking about how we're understanding American political life, I also teach uh, Chinese philosophy at our center. And what's striking to me is the extent to which my students, who are all American undergraduates, tend to gravitate to legalism. When we read these texts, they're like, the legalists make total sense. The Confucians, the Taoists, I don't get that at all. And of course... Because they're American, right? And, um, and American... Republicans. <laughs> well, but no, but if you think about... I mean, Sam can probably you know, talk about this better than I, but... You know, if you take a look at how Americans structure their political lives, there's an awful lot of legalism there. We start from a point of original sin that human nature is not necessarily evil, but fundamental, or as Shunzi might say, radically self-interested. And then we operate a system of checks and balances to regulate that radical self-interest. And that's a way of looking, at, again, this is looking top down, of course, but that's a way of ordering society that, that Confucius probably would have found quite difficult to take is we're regulating through laws and punishments what should actually be regulated through right, wrong, virtue, and, you know, shame. So that's interesting. This is an old saw that, that helps to explain how these things combine. Oh, I, say this, is the, this is the, I was a, when... Rubial Fali. Yeah. Yeah. So when you're in the office, you're all buttoned up and you're a Confucian and wearing the tie and, you know, shuffling the paper just so. And then when you get back home and you're hanging out doing Miller time and weekends, basically. You're doing you're drinking the drinking the wine, painting the paintings, writing the poetry, then you're a Taoist. And of course the last part is That's why Taoism's cool. <laughs> exactly. And then of course when you die you have a Buddhist funeral just in case. Right. <laughs> no, I think what you say is right, and that is there's something a bit artificial about what I'm doing in terms of I'm arraying these two schools of thought. And I know some people wouldn't want to use the word schools of thought these two philosophies against each other. While you're absolutely right, historically in practice, people drew on you know both of these universes. But the texts themselves are great because there is a way that they resist each other. Zhuangzi is constantly making fun of Confucius sure. and making him a sock puppet uh, for all sorts of non-Confucian sorts of ideas. And Mencius then, too, and actually the Taoists pop up in Mencius and the Analects a little bit. The Moists are more the, the yeah, kind right. of target They're of, uh, of their ire. But, but nonetheless, so there's ways that some self-described Confucians will want to resist certain Taoist ideas because they'd be seen as immoral or irresponsible. And Taoists would want to resist Confucian ideas because they'd be seen as... Unnatural. Unnatural and just kind of stupid. <laughs> 
So the way I set up these philosophies in the book is I just I just try to extract several key concepts from each side. In the case of Confucianism, it's a Ren and uh, E and Li. So something like humanity um, or and duty and ritual. E Uh, you translate as not righteousness but as duty. uh, Yeah, and uh, there's particular reasons. So there's you know, can I say this? Translation is a bitch. Yeah, uh, you, you, you know, can. you pe- can say fuck. You can say, you know, <laughs> people come at me. This is a Dallas podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, but I mean it. I'm thinking of Brendan. Uh, if he were here, right, Brendan O'Kane, uh, he would probably agree that the translation's a bitch. I think he would use stronger terminology. So <laughs> okay. go right ahead. But in any event, so E is tough. Appropriateness, righteousness, rightness, rightness. Yeah. I like duty because there's a way that I see it as tying those other ideas to what you're supposed to do in your given your particular social context and role. Okay. So there's a kind of duty-bound idea embedded in there. Mm-hmm. And then Lee becomes the, you know, actual doing in the right way of Right. The E. And, and I realize these Lee concepts is are... The, the appropriate manifestation of, of, of E. e right? right. So I have those on the Confucian side, and on the Taoist side have uh, Tao and De and Wu Wei. So that's a, you know, a fairly thin start. I mean, there's many other concepts you could pull out of these philosophies, but I think they're enough to get a conversation started and enough to be able to then move to a series of particular applications... And the way that I set it up is across the arc of life. So the way I selected the actual topics I looked at. um, It's cradle to grave, right? Cradle to grave. And I got that from a visiting faculty member one day. I was just talking to her about how I'm struggling with trying to conceive of this project. And she said, why not across the arc of life? And I thought, what a great idea. So birth, childhood, work. Marriage and family. Incarceration. (laughs) (laughs) Public and political life. And then end-of-life issues. So, yeah. I thought it was very colorful, the way you opened the book, actually, with, you know, the sort of the elaborate uh, blackmail handshake ritual, um, describing that as essentially Confucian. I don't know if a lot of people are going to be able to get past that, though. I mean, it's it's going to jar. Well, I'm sure Jeremiah probably knows that's a blatant ripoff from Herbert Finnegret's The Secular is Sacred, where he describes a handshake as a type of ritual. Now, I... I render it into a type of handshake that emerges out of African-American practice and is now just, you know, kind of diffused to American Pretty much generally. anyone under 45 does it as like, you know, it's, it's, it's very standard, right? Mm-hmm. Right. I, I think, too, that sometimes when, uh, especially when you're teaching, when we're teaching these these ideas, we say ritual, people tend to immediately gravitate towards big rituals. They think of their own lives. Communions. Or communion or marriage or bar bat mitzvahs or things like that without realizing that that ritual plays a role in all of our daily lives, in, in sometimes in very small ways, in ways we don't always notice, whether it's a handshake or simply how we address somebody. You know, it, when we're talking about it from a, a Confucian perspective, all of these, these, these things matter, the little things almost as much as the big ones. And how you do it, you know, that's, that's almost everything sometimes. You... Why do they matter to Confucians? Because it seems to me that in other religions, the rituals matter because you have to, b- to believe in God and you have to believe or that to. Uh, what you're doing has some kind of significance, that, you know, you, you're drinking this wine and it actually is the blood of Christ. I mean, you have to believe that rigmarole. 
But that's not the case in Confucianism. You don't have to believe a whole bunch of rigmarole. So why do you do the rituals in, just, in Confucianism? Just to put it out there, I'm not going to call Confucianism a religion. That's a fraught question. Right. Uh, I, I'm not saying it you, is. But what's the difference in the approach, say, of Catholicism to ritual or Tibetan Buddhism to ritual well, I think there's a, compared there's to Confucianism? A similarity, but I think the point about the little things mattering. So it's really hard to be a Confucian and because you have to be on it all the time. You have to walk into every social situation that you're in and sort of calculate who's here, what's happened to people here, what's the right thing to say, what's the right thing to do in every particular social circumstance you find. It's kind of like speaking Japanese. But why do you do that, Sam? Why if you're a Confucian? Because if you're a Catholic, you do it because you don't want to go to hell. Are Confucians more like Jews? You just do it because, I don't know, why did Jews do it? Because no, why, why we got it explain? brainwashed before the bar mitzvah. I don't know. You know, I mean, what's the point of the ritual? No, the, so the point, well, again, part of it, the problem is the term ritual because it makes it sound kind of religious or formal, where instead it's a matter of, by Lee, is a matter of actually performing the right thing and doing that all the time. And the purpose of it is not to, to go to heaven. Uh, it's to be able to realize humanity in the world here right now and to progress towards greater humanity in your life, to live a good life. I, I think, Jeremy, you're taking the word ritual a little too literally or I mean, not using it in the sense that Sam and the Confucians really mean it. It's appropriate behavior. It's contextually appropriate behavior much of the time. Right. But I, so, I mean, but what, what's the moral? What happens if we stop? behaving according to our contextually appropriate That's my duty. question, I guess. And the, the point is not that we go to hell or that we But the world heaven, does, or but the society right. does. Right, the know, world goes to shit. you got to think about, once again, it helps the historical background. You know, Confucius is talking about these things at a time when the world has gone to hell. You know, it's a time when what we think of today as China is broken up among all these kingdoms and while, you know, it's sort of romantic Game of Thrones, warring states era, it was a profoundly shitty time to be alive. You had armies marching to and fro, kings, well, I guess kings, dukes, nobles, you know, battling with each other, trying to steal or take as much as they could. And when Confucius looks at this world, the first thing he realizes is that the society, people have stopped acting in the way that is appropriate to who they are and what is appropriate for society. And when you start, you know, you can start with the big things, obviously. You know, people should stop killing each other. You should rule through virtue. But at the end of the day, it's always these little interactions that really end up mattering. Broken windows policy. That's, I was going well, to say, that makes me think, is that what it's like? But it's there's Malcolm the, Gladwell's famous thing about fix the the broken windows in New York, and then the crime rate goes down because people feel as though... Wilson, a, right? That was, uh, the, there was a sociologist, uh, Wilson. Uh, Jeremiah says is right in the sense that if you do the right thing, it's going to serve society. But if you do the right thing for Mencius, it's going to serve yourself as well because we all have these innate capacities for goodness. In fact, our personal humanity is there to be developed and cultivated. So you know, we all have good and bad within, within us. And if we cultivate what's good within us, that's going to lead us to live a better life. This is his argument. So you do the little things because it's the best thing for you personally in developing your own humanity. So I want to take this back to where we originally wanted to go with it and pick out a couple of these uh, ethical dilemmas or these, these ethical issues in contemporary American society uh, and then uh, let Sam explain how his Taoist and his Confucian would, would go at them. And I think the ones that we want to do, maybe if, if no one objects, are abortion. 
always a very, very hot-button issue in American politics. And uh, crime, specifically the issue of, of underage criminals being tried as adults. So let's start with abortion then. How would a Confucian and a Taoist approach this, this contentious issue? So this is one of those moments where I think we have an opposition between the two of them uh, in the sense that as I think it through, I think that a contemporary Confucian would be tolerant of abortion under certain circumstances where a contemporary Taoist would want to avoid uh, abortion. In the case of Confucians, as you know, the abortion debate often centers around the question of where you come down about the question of the beginning of life, mm-hmm. a marvelously philosophical question, by the way. Uh, and I think for Confucians, it's not really a biological thing, uh, but it's a social thing. That is to say, at what point in the development of a fetus before it's, it's born uh, might there be some kind of process of sociality where that child-to-be is recognized and starts to be sort of integrated into social networks. I think in some ways the moment of birth itself when a child is here with us now, we've all sensed this, if we've been around this, how a child will just change the way people behave and act and understand themselves. And that's the beginning of a kind of humanizing social network and a, a reciprocal ethical process that I think attaches a new status to that child. The point of of how you would say no to birth would be a matter of family members, parents, saying, no, there are competing obligations, especially the obligations we have to family members who are with right now, the living, I think, from a Confucian point of view, would trump the potential obligations we would have to the not yet living. Why? Because The living are here and we're actually already involved in those social networks and there's a kind of kind of established practice and humanity that's already being uh, developed there. And it might be the case that, so the conditions under which Confucians would accept abortion would be, if there was a legitimate argument to say, we can't bring another child into this family unit right now because we don't have the time, resources, whatever, or the circumstances Uh, to allow us to actually follow through and take care of the social family obligations that we have now. There might be arguments that a Confucian would rule out for abortion if it was simply a kind of a selfish kind of, well, I don't want it It for me. It inconveniences me, right? Something like that, right. Although generally I think Confucians would be pro-choice in the sense of they would resist having an overarching single law that would outlaw abortion Mm -hmm. um, because their ethics is circumstantial. You have to be able to judge case by case uh, to be able to determine whether any particular instance would be justifiable or not. Okay. I think that explains the Confucian view pretty well. Uh, The Taoist thing is a little easier in the sense that, as you know, the Uwe, the take no action that would interfere with the natural unfolding of things, that's how I understand Uwe, I think would lead generally to a an aversion to abortion. You know, why? You ask the Taoist, should, should we have an abortion in this case? I think the first response would be, well, why? It's an obvious case of human intervention in a natural process. Right? Because you think you have a goal that you're going to accomplish by that action, which 
you know, might turn out to be delusion. You might right. think it's anathema I, I, to the Taoist. I, exactly, to have any kind of goal like that, because that suggests the you know, humanly produced action can somehow be efficacious in the world. And there's a deep skepticism in Taoism about that, yes. So I think there it's a, a little cleaner in that sense, and that uh, that general aversion to that kind of scientific medical intervention. From a philosophical Taoist point of view, we know that religious Taoists are all about prolonging life through whatever, and that's Not another difference there. Sexual yoga and what have you. So, okay, I'll bite on this one. If we're to take a look at this issue from the perspective of, say, Ren or humaneness, or even this notion of reciprocity, or as the uh, Jesuits in their inimitable way referred to, the silver rule, which in Confucianism is don't do unto others what you would not want others to do unto you, or at least this notion that you would take no action to against somebody or to somebody that you would not do, want done to you. How do we then reconcile this with, say, abortion? Because it would seem to be this is something that nobody would want done to them. Are we talking about the mother or are we talking about the, the unborn child? I personally am glad I was not aborted. Well, I would not. Sure. So if I do not want this action done to me... How then can I justify? Well, I mean, are you somebody who is in a position at the point where you're, you know, three months or four months along? Are you a person? Are you capable of? No, you're probably not. No, no, I think that's the point. That is to say, there, I don't think there's a contradiction from the Confucian way of thinking in a sense that um, that golden rule, we'll call it, um, applies to persons. Uh, and because fetus has not been introduced into a social, social relationship and a social context yet, um, they don't have the same moral status as an already existing person. So this is, and then this kind of makes sense if you think in the way of we exist as social creatures in Confucianism. We exist because of the network of relationships in which we are present. And, you know, and that, so, I mean, from that perspective, it makes sense. But it does, it does occur to me that those people who may misinterpret Confucianism or as, the, as a very moralistic philosophy, which many people do, may misinterpret, may, may also think too, like, well, these are these great moralists, they're, of course, will be opposed to these, you know, for those people who disagree with abortion, morally reprehensible acts and will come down, you know, firmly against it. Right, but it's a morality that's, again, situational. So it's not sure. have a single rule that applies in all cases. Yeah, I mean, that's Confucianism is situational ethics. It's a, yeah. it's But actually, there's a way that you know, what we're talking about is actually what exists in the United States now, but a Confucian argument doesn't invoke rights to frame it. That is to say, if the, if the parents-to-be of a fetus don't want, haven't accepted that potential child into a social network in the United States right now, they have the choice not to bring that, that birth to term. Uh, but they really don't have much philosophical basis for understanding that. They just invoke, well, we can. We have rights to do it. Where Confucianism actually provides uh, more of a philosophical context for that, uh, that decision. Okay. I think it's time to push forward to the next topic, which is uh, on, on crime and uh, juvenile crime specifically. Um, where you have a chapter devoted to this. 
um, where let's let's start with the Taoists time and then to the Confucians. Where did the Taoists come down on something? Right. Like this? So the the chapter is about childhood and it's about defining and thinking about childhood and and the difference between being a child and adult. And the way I try to focus it and crystallize it is on this question of should a child who's created a heinous oh, excuse me committed a heinous crime be tried as an adult? So the answer to that depends upon how we understand childhood. And Confucian, oh no, you asked to start with Taoist. Sure. Uh, the Taoist understanding is not like our understanding of childhood because there's a general rejection or aversion to creating categories. Categories, exactly, in a way so that we say, here's a child, here's an adult. Certainly, I have a certain sympathy for most kinds of Taoist arguments because we all know adults who really are essentially children in a lot of ways. And we all probably know children who, in their behavior and understandings, and we all know children who are uh, more morally mature than some of the adults we know. So in ways, you know, Taoists want to reject that. Moreover, we usually think, and Confucians think, like we do, of children as morally immature and therefore not responsible for their actions, where Taoists actually venerate the infant because they are the tabula rasa. They are persons who have not created all sorts of ideas and theories and arguments and interpretive kind of frames to encounter the world that obstructs their vision of the unencumbered unfolding of Tao. So there's a way that childhood is is to be celebrated uh, in a sense. But at the end of the day, even though they have this unique, I think, sense of or definition of what childhood is, Taoists would just kind of scratch their head at the question because you know it presumes this initial categorization mm-hmm. that they would reject. And they say, hey, you know, it would just simply depend on the individual and the individual situation. There well, would be a kind the, of... A, there's a resemblance then to what I assume you would say about the Confucian, that it would depend on a situation. It would depend on a context. Right, but the the Taoist approach, I think, is more radically relativistic than the Confucian, because a Confucian, there's a clearer argument, because there is a clearer sense that there's a famous passage, uh, at at 15 I turned myself to learning, at 30 I took a stand, and then for every decade there's a sense of greater and greater moral maturity. I think I I was established at 30. I was established. Right. Okay. Uh, we can argue about translation, but something that, but that the thirty. Well, I hope it's. I took a stand. I mean, I was taking plenty of stands at thirty, but I was certainly not established. <laughs> no, but I think I think the general idea yeah. of taking a stand or being established is that we've reached a kind of stage where we are more fully responsible for our moral selves. That's right. You now put that, away childish things in, in indeed, the words there of we a different. Are. Uh, now that doesn't mean you're, you have a total pass in your twenties. But it does mean that as you grow and and develop, there's a there's a sense that you are maturing morally. So, the flip side of that then is if a, if a kid 14 years old murdered somebody, the Confucian response would be, "Do not ever uh, try that child as an adult because clearly there's been some kind of familial or social breakdown." that has failed this person in their moral development, and that's what needs to be attended to, uh, would be some kind of educational response as, a, as opposed to a punitive response. That's interesting. I think it's, uh, it's, it's also very telling. In that it, it doesn't feel shoehorned uncomfortably into a, a, a modern context, which is nice, which I think is the danger in a book like this, right? 
yeah, that I just make it what I want to be. And I'm hopeful for readers to point out where that might be a problem and how I can improve these arguments can as I, I go forward. Can I ask about another problem? Could you not say that Confucianism really is just a way of institutionalizing sexism and giving the elites power? Yes. I mean, well, historically, I could say it was that. And people working on philosophy, people working on Confucianism now really have to lay down the argument, especially on the sexism point. And I think there's been great work, actually, that has that has shown that if Confucianism is going to have any meaning in a modern world, it has to be understood in a, in a gender-neutral manner. And it can be understood in a gender-neutral manner. It was not understood that way historically in China, but that's, that is, that's the first step that has to be taken if, you're, if we're going to go there. In terms of serving power, I think that's a bigger problem, and that's part of my kind of project of emphasizing this bottom-up practical ethics approach as opposed to a top-down approach. Because I think, here, let me just throw it out there. I think Confucianism has been a historical failure as a political theory insofar as it has been unable to stand by itself as an argument for how power should be understood and transferred and constituted. It's had to rely historically upon legalism for an institutional structure to survive politically. And, of course, if you look at the pre-Chin texts, uh, there's no way that, say, Mencius would have been comfortable with the, the Han synthesis where Confucianism gets smashed into legalism in order to survive politically. Now, and, okay. and even then, early only after the rule of Han Wudi, I mean, before that, I mean, early Han, the, the synthesis is even a stranger one. I mean, which has that sort of Huang Lao Taoist right. element to it. Right, and I think similarly, Taoism doesn't stand by itself very effectively as a political theory in terms of articulating law and and authorizing authority. And you do get this, you know, in Han Feizhu, you even have, you know, using Taoist language in the opening chapters of that uh, in ways that I think really are not at all in keeping with the spirit of Taoism, which is much more of a source of critique of power than it is any sort of apology for power. One of the things I think is interesting here, too, is we're talking about these ancient Chinese philosophies and their applicability, at least understanding how we might understand our place in, a, in say, an American political life. And this raises, of course, a really interesting question and one that's been debated for a long time is, you know, what is the universalism of these ancient Chinese philosophies. I mean, there's a, a long um, history of writing about this. I mean, a 19th century Confucian would have no trouble understanding that Confucian had a universal applicability. But to say in the 21st century, uh, a non-Chinese say, I am a Confucian would, would sound very odd. And, you know, one of the things we think about, you know, in the transition from this, from point A to point B, is this notion of, is Confucianism still even a viable living tradition? I mean, once you take a, an idea that is universal and you try to preserve it as the very specific possession of a particular group, you museumify it. And to quote somebody who was quoted in one of my favorite books, I think one of Kaiser's favorite books too, by an author named Joseph Levinson, Tradition is a living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is a dead faith of the living. I love that line. <laughs> Say that again, <laughs> slowly. <laughs> Traditionalism. Tradition, Tradition is the living, living faith, faith of, of the, the dead. dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. And one of the things about this is that we're now taking 
ancient Chinese philosophy, applying it to an entirely separate geographic cultural context. And if that if it has applicability, that suddenly in some ways kind of revives it. And it helps those people who are trying to create a new viable Confucianism in the 21st century. So I guess what, the question here is how much are you in earnest here? I mean, do you really feel that it has uh, a salience and Jeremiah says a sort of viability? Yes, I absolutely do. Um, and I think the way Jeremiah is framed is very helpful because I'm not a Confucian with a capital C who has a Confucian project. And I'm going to f- establish in a Confucian academy and train acolytes to wear Confucian clothes and go out. No, I think that's that's the traditionalism that's dead and can't be revived. But here we have these texts, right? We have all of these texts. They're, they're before us. We read them. They're in our minds. I read these texts with my students all the time, and I say, as I mentioned before, looking at the Daily News, oh, you know, Obama, Obama, what he's doing there sounds like Mencius. <laughs> and there's ways that I, I find resonances of the text. The text exists with us today. They're not dead and gone. They're in translation. We can argue about that. I, I don't see translation as a problem. I think the translation allows us to get the ideas into a modern setting. And then we will derive the meanings, and the meanings will change. What Confucianism is now is not what it was 200 years ago in China. It can't be. Of course it can't be. But I think there's still a way that it can be something unique and derived from this set of texts that can be helpful in a way uh, to contemporary conversations. So, yes, I'm definitely in earnest about the project. Sam, uh, and you're talking really about the applicability of these ways of thinking to your own life and to your fellow Americans. What about in China? How serious is contemporary Confucianism as a, a strain of thought in Chinese? There's a big question. <laughs> something which I have in public forums previously expe- expressed some strong opinions, which I won't repeat now. But no, f- Feel free. No, I, you should. I mean, I think that's, it's salient to our, our discussion. Well, I, I, I have written a rant sent around to uh, certain people about how I thought that there was no Confucianism in contemporary Chinese life in the mainland and that it was just basically a, kind of like a logo that the government would, you know, every now and again bring up, you know, they make Confucius Institutes. There was a, a statue of Confucius that was erected near Tiananmen Square and then mysteriously disappeared into the depths of the, the National Museum. There doesn't seem to me to be a genuine living Confucian ethic or even a, a, an organized form of studying it or implementing it in any way in, in contemporary China. I don't think uh, China is a Confucian society, but I think there are people who have absorbed and practice various aspects of Confucian philosophy. China is not a Confucian society because there's not enough of those people to add up in a way that would really shape larger uh, social movements, structures, etc. I think the modernizing effects of the 20th century, everything that's happened in China in the last 150 years has totally undermined. I don't live here. I, I kind of drop in every so often and wander around. So I'm at Gulo and I, I see families out on Sunday afternoons. And I, and again, I see that as a kind of diffuse cultural expectation that, and yes, the government does overdo it and comes out with overbearing kinds of institutionalized things, which are meant to bolster the you know decaying ideological legitimacy of the party and all of that. We understand that. But regardless of that, I think there's still a 
again, sort of a generalized sensibility where, yeah, we do exist in, and we find our best selves within our immediate uh, social relationships, and the best thing that we can do is to cultivate our closest loving relationships. I would agree. I, but that's a, a big conversation for another time. I'm going to keep this focused on America and ask one last question of Sam here before we move to recommendations, and that's this. If you were to take the political landscape of contemporary America, the, the essentially two-party system, but with um, you know gradations in between, include the libertarians, include the Tea Party, how do they map onto your, your sort of spectrum? Um, then you can throw in any of the other hundred schools if, if need be. But how would they map? They don't map very well in any kind of large formal sense. Again, so the you know the way I I tend to do this is to sense kind of resonances here and there. But in answering the question, I think Obama is a mention sort of guy. Uh, when we think of Obamacare, uh, an honorable mention. <laughs> the <laughs> no. So you know the idea that the state should care about and take some responsibility to allow people to carry forth their family duties and to be able to care for their parents and their children with requisite dignity, this is right out of, of Mencius. Absolutely. So That's actually what we call normal everywhere outside the United States. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, Obama is extraordinary in that way. So I think there's ways that his project, but then also for Confucians, character matters in leaders because you want to have exemplars, moral exemplars. And there's a way that, especially in contrast to the last Democratic presidential president that we had, to the way that Obama takes care of his family business you know, he's seen as a good father and husband in a way that, you know, models good behavior for everybody. Where Clinton's peccadilloes, I think Confucians would have been very— uh, They would have tut-tutted. They, no, more than tut-tutted. Right. They would have expected him to resign. I mean, that kind of family failure is bottom line for Confucians, I think. So on the Taoist side, it's much harder because we might associate Taoism with some strands of libertarianism, but I'm not going to say Rand Paul is a Taoist. An approach to foreign policy that's non-interventionist obviously uh, would be there, although Obama's approach to Syria and Libya when— Leading point, from behind. Leading from behind. Yeah. This is a Taoist idea, actually, the idea of, of leading from behind. So, you know, clearly Bush— was not a Taoist in his foreign policy at all. So we have a new, we have a new saw then for Bush for is not a Taoist. A Confucian went in domestic politics, a Taoist in, in, in foreign policy. I don't stand, understand how Rand Paul is not a Taoist, but Alex Rodriguez is. <laughs> then you re- come back to baseball. Referring to a blog post that I'll have to reconstruct is in my baseball? mind. Is baseball? I'm lost. There we go. Yeah. Red Sox. Yeah. Well, we've had probably enough inside yeah. baseball with, with just um, you know various pre-4th century BC philosophers, so let's uh, let's leave it at that. Um, Sam, that was great, man. I, I, I'm really looking forward to, to reading the chapters of the book that I haven't finished yet. Let's um let's move to recommendations. I'm going to start here on my left with Jeremiah Jenny. What do you have for us? Well, you know, my stu- students of mine have often asked me, you know, where is a good place to start with, you know, thinking about these issues or learning about these issues. <laughs> and there are obviously a lot of books out there about Chinese philosophy, some of which you could actually stun a small animal with. They're so weighty, like literally weighty. But one place that I may suggest starting for those people who are interested in Chinese philosophy is a short history of Chinese philosophy and and this is actually, this is a book that dates back to the early 20th century, but is no less a book for its um, age. 
was written by an eminent scholar named Feng Yolan, and it's available in most bookstores around the world, including in Beijing. Um, in fact, in Beijing, there's a version that has Chinese and English side by side for those of you who want to tackle these issues in Chinese as well. Wonderful. It's a great book. I, I can highly recommend it. I, I double endorse that one. Jeremy, what do you have for us? I just want to recommend On the Media, a radio show, an NPR radio show and podcast, which I think I may have recommended on the show before. But it's just if you're interested in media, the media business and America and where it's going, it's the most fantastic show. Uh, it's sort of similar to Seneca, except that they have a real budget. <laughs> Great. On the Media. Let's, I, I actually I've, I've heard it once or twice, but I, I should probably pay a little more attention to it. Thanks, Jeremy. It's it's if I maybe I should express a little bit more clearly why I think it's so good is that it looks at American media culture very sympathetically and very critically and I really like that because that is how I feel. Okay, Sam, what do you have for us? I'm going to give a shout out to Steve Angle and his uh, his book. He's a professor of philosophy at Wesleyan. His book, uh, Contemporary Confucian Political Philosophy, where he uh, develops the ideas of Mo Zongsan and um, argues that there can be a notion of progressive Confucianism, which I think serves as an a, uh, antidote to those interpretations of Confucianism that seem to wed it to authoritarian political forms. Uh, this sees uh, more possibility for democratic and progressive kinds of <coughs> Confucian uh, uh, forms. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. My recommendation is a short and sweet little article in The Diplomat by a PhD student um, at the University of Aberdeen named Alessandro Ripa. I have not met him in person, um, and it, it's in keeping with last week's podcast. It's called Call Tiananmen Attack What It Was, Terrorism. And uh, he lays out a case where you know he's entirely sympathetic with most of what people have, have written, but uh, finds himself very frustrated at this unwillingness to use the T word and maybe, and as I am with the appropriateness of larding up a piece with so much context, uh, when maybe the more appropriate immediate response is to focus on the, the innocent lives taken, as you'd, you'd see after, say, the Boston Marathon bombing, which he makes comparisons to. Yeah, Jeremiah. I was going to say, I mean, one of the things that struck me this week, because, of course, with the Boston Red Sox winning the World Series, there was a lot of talk about, how the, about the Boston Marathon bombing. And when I heard about the 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 incident in Tiananmen, you know, there more people actually died in that than died in the Boston Marathon bombing. I didn't want to compare tragedies, but the responses of the cities were so very different in my mind. The response of the people here, people were shocked by it, but there really wasn't the sense of coming together as one that you saw in Boston almost immediately following it the attack. No information here. Well, and no David Ortiz, but that's beside the point. I mean, it just seems, it was just, the differences were very, were, were kind of shocking to me in that way. Okay, anyway, um, Sam, it was great to have you on. Great to be here. Thanks so much. And uh, please drop by next time you're back through town. I will. And uh, best of luck on the rest of your book touring. Jeremy, great to see you. Jeremiah, good, good to see you again too, man. Okay, guys, uh, we'll see you next week. Um, <laughs> and I think what we're going to do is a, a preview of the third plenum of the 18th party congress next week and we'll, we'll try to get a scintillating subject i'm sure to be a barn burner it will be a barn <laughs> fuck yeah we're gonna make it really exciting third plenum rock and roll <laughs> and with that All right. ain't no second plenum here <laughs> goodbye folks <laughs>